0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning we are beginning a brand new series through the book of 1 John. And so there are a few books that I find very, very intimidating. One of those is Revelation. It's apocalypse scenes. It's just a difficult book. Not too long ago, we walked through Revelation, and its theological depth can be very, very intimidating. I think Ezekiel, for me, is one of those books. With all the prophecy and the imagery, it is just a difficult book. It doesn't mean that we should shy away from them. I want to read them. I want to study them. Well, this morning, I now put 1 John in with these difficult books, because this is going to be an exciting journey over the next several weeks and a great challenge uh, for all of us. So let me just share with you some of the difficulties in this book. For one, the author is never named. I know you're says 1 John, and we'll talk about that, but the author is never named. We don't really know the audience. There's no clear group that this is written to. Even the date is unclear about when this book was actually penned. But the greatest challenges are in the text. So let me show you a few of these. We do not have time this morning, but we will be walking through them. Just listen real closely to First John 2.3. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. You go the next chapter over in 3.22, it says, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Christ and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments, notice what it says, abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So He tells us that we know God, and it tells us by keeping the commandments. That we receive what we ask if we obey. And then He says if we keep His commandments, notice, they abide in God. But doesn't the Bible say over and over again that God's love is unconditional and His acceptance is unconditional? But you read 1 John, and all of a sudden it seems to be saying something else. So what happens when I don't keep the commandments? Do I still belong to the family of God? Well, in chapter 2, verse 18, here's another problem. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so how many Antichrists have come? Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So is there one Antichrist, or are there many? Numerous. And here, the author says that they are in the last hour. But it's been almost 2,000 years. That's one long hour. But then it gets really difficult. In chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, he says, No one abides in Him, keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning, has ever seen Him or known Him. Little children, do not... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, for he is righteous. So no one abides in him sins. And I go, what? But I know I still sin, and I kind of hope you still do. But doesn't that mean, does that mean that I don't know God if I sin? Because that's what he seems to be saying. Or you go to 518. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So no one born of God sins? But I know we all sin. Does that mean when we do that we are not born of him? One last problem. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. The Bible says over and over, because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's how you go from death to life. But notice what it says. We know that we have passed out of death into light because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So this is going to be a challenging journey through this book to reconcile all of these statements. Because I think the problem is we often, we want something that is easy to understand, easy to apply, something you can easily put on a bumper sticker or a colorful picture and post. That's naturally what we like, but this is not 1 John. But I don't say this to scare us away. In fact, I challenge you, this is going to be exciting. Go and begin reading through this book as many times as you can. But as difficult as it's going to be, it will be absolutely worth it because we are going to get to dive deep. Into some essential beliefs. In fact, I asked a question uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Man, it'd be great if we could talk through some things that we believe in, why it's important. Well, great news. First John, we're going to talk about what we should believe about God. We're going to look at the doctrine of sin. We'll look at beliefs of Jesus Christ, even the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And 1 John has them all. So what I want to do, I want to give you my thoughts of those kind of preliminary questions, but I challenge you to go and search these answers for yourself. So first of all, who wrote it? Even though the author is not mentioned, there is a lot of evidence that it's actually who is listed in your Bible as John, who was the son of Zebedee, brother of James, one of the twelve disciples. Because there are lots of similarities between his gospel and 1 John. We'll look at even one of those today. So I believe the author is John that wrote Revelation, wrote wrote the Gospel of John in 1st through 3rd John. I believe that's who it is. Well, when is it written? Well, there's two possible dates. One is going to be before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. When this is happening, Rome is going to burn it to the ground, blame the Jews, and many Jews are going to leave. And I believe this is when John takes Jesus' mother Mary and he leaves Jerusalem and he's going to settle in Ephesus. But another date would be after this, around 85 to 100 AD when Trajan is the emperor of Rome. We know that John dies towards the end of that first century. So I take this to be the earlier date that's just before the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, who's he writing to? Because you, you're, they're never mentioned. I believe what happens is John goes to Ephesus and he is going to write this letter, but not to one particular group. This is going to be a letter that would meant to be passed around, circulated, I believe, to the churches that he mentions, the seven of them mentioned in Revelation of Asia Minor. But as many things that are unclear and maybe not listed specifically, what John does for us is he lays out why he is writing. In fact, here's the four purposes you'll find through this book. One, he's going to see today to make your joy complete. That's one of his purposes. The second one, we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin and his purpose is that you will not sin. The third one is he wants to protect against being led astray and we're going to see that begin taking place even today. But his fourth purpose is so that you will believe in the name of the Son of God and know that you have eternal life. So let's go to 1 John chapter 1 and today we're going to look at the first 4 verses. And as you're doing that, I want you to think about all the things that kind of mark out things in our lives. Things like diplomas. You see a diploma on the wall, and what does that that is evidence of somebody that's made some type of educational accomplishment. You take rings. Rings symbolize weddings, and they symbolize marriages. Um, Blisters. Blisters can be evidence of brand new shoes or a hard day's work. And there's marks, there's evidences. Scars. Our pastor, senior pastor this week had neck surgery. Ross is doing much better. Uh, Sent me a very grotesque picture of the scar in his neck. Uh, where he had neck surgery. So scars can be evidence or marks of surgeries. or in, in my case, it's usually really bad decisions. That's what that usually means. You meet people, the way they talk, their accent. You can't tell? I'm from New York, you know? The accents tell us where somebody is from. There's marks, there's evidence. But what about the Christian life? What about the lives of believers? What are the marks? What are the evidences of God's work in your life. Have you ever wondered? You hear a lot about the gospel, what Jesus Christ did, but have you ever wondered, what difference does that really make in my ordinary, everyday life of all the things I do, of getting kids ready for school, doing homework I don't understand, and paying bills, and going to a job? How does the gospel really make a difference in the ordinary things? Well, today we're going to see one of the Mark's of God's work in the lives of followers, but it might not be what you expect. So look at how he begins this letter, this epistle, in verse 1. 1 John chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning. So all of a sudden we have our very first question, what does he mean by the beginning? I take this to mean beginning before there even was a beginning, before time and space as we know it. That. That which was from the beginning. Well, he's referring to Jesus Christ because John, from the very beginning, wants to make something very, very clear. He wants to show that Jesus Christ has eternally existed and He was not created. And that is going to be vitally important. Because notice what John says about Him. That which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. So it's that which existed before time and space. I've heard, I've seen, I've looked upon, and I've touched. And describes him as the word of life. So one of the reasons I believe this is the writer of the gospel is because this is one of John's favorite descriptions of Jesus. In fact, that's how he begins the gospel In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So he's referring to Jesus Christ. But why would John start his letter this way? When speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, I've heard, I've seen, I've looked upon, and I have touched him. It's because what's going on in the background. Because John is facing a deadly disease. This deadly disease is coming into the church in the form of a false teaching. May or may not have heard about it. It's the false teaching called Gnosticism. This word means knowledge. So John is writing this letter to these people in Asia Minor because there is this teaching called Gnosticism. So let me give us some information about that. There's two primary beliefs that drove this teaching. One was this. The way of salvation was through this secret, superior, hidden knowledge. And only a few found it. And if you were one of those, you were enlightened. And that was how you came about to salvation was this superior, this secret knowledge. But there's another teaching. The other teaching was this. They saw the world in two different phases. The physical and the spiritual. One was this. The physical, the body, it was evil. But the spirit, the spirit was good. And you lived in this reality that your physical was bad and your spirit is good. And you go, okay, that sounds about right. But here's why this is so dangerous. Here's why it is so important that John addresses this teaching. First of all, The teaching of salvation was only through a superior or special knowledge and only a few found. They were the ones that obtained it. It goes against every fiber of the Scriptures. the second one is this. If the physical is evil and the spirit is good, then what do you do with Jesus, God, becoming man? Because if physical is is evil and the spirit is good, then Jesus, being spirit, could not become a man and be tainted by the evil. If you're a little confused, that's okay. I am too. But here's, here's what they taught. If the body is evil, then God, being a spirit being, cannot come into contact with the body. And one of the things they looked upon was the Old Testament. When a body died, you were not to touch it. Because you were not to be tainted. But the danger is this. Is what it does to the incarnation, one of our bedrock beliefs as believers. So, what is the incarnation? The incarnation is God becoming man. And you cannot have an incarnation under the Gnosticism teaching. So, this is what they taught that Jesus, God, was a spirit, came to earth, but he literally didn't have a human body, he only appeared that way you might could see him but it was really only an illusion or another one was that he was a man fully a man but it wasn't till his baptism and then the spirit came but they taught that the spirit was from God but he just appeared to be a man and so this is what John is saying no 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 I saw him I heard him I even touched him John wants them to know he knows that he is real That I put my hands where the nails were driven. I touched his feet. He is real. So this is why this is so important. Because if you take away the incarnation. That God became fully man. You take away the heart of Christianity. That God sent his son spiritually. But also fully physically to offer salvation to the world. That Jesus... If he did not really become a man, then he really could not have died for your sins. Because he had to fully become a man to pay the price that we were the ones that endured or created. And so John is saying this is how essential the incarnation is, that Jesus had to actually become human to pay the price for our sins. That if he wasn't human, he only appeared to be then you are still dead in your sins. And John is saying, this is how important the incarnation is. He had to come and fully represent humanity. But there's actually a third danger. It comes from this teaching. When you really dive deep into it, and we're going to see this over the next several weeks, so let me just give you the highlights. If the way of salvation is only through kind of a superior, Um, A hidden knowledge. And and a few people find it. Well what it did. It caused three major effects in a person. One it created spiritual pride. It created this pride. That says I am one of the ones that was enlightened. I am the one of the ones that found it. It's still hidden to you. So it creates a pride. Therefore a lack of love for other people. And that's what pride always does. But there's another one. Asceticism. If the body is evil then what we need to be doing is punishing our bodies in various ways. But then there was a third thing that this teaching did. It created what you know as licentiousness. Basically meaning, hey, if the body, the physical is bad and the spirit is good, it really doesn't matter what you do in the body because it doesn't really matter because you can't get to the spirit. So therefore, there really are no rules. Just live the life that you want to live, and it'll all work out in the end. What is clear is that even though Gnosticism may not be taught, maybe it's the first time you have heard that word, what we need to realize is that these three dangers are really alive and well even today. So you take pride. And thinking in some way or acting in some way that we are more deserving than other people because of a variety of things. Maybe our education, our jobs, our skin color, that we can think we are superior, or we can think we are more deserving. And pride is alive and well, even spiritual pride. Well, look at how much I know. And if everybody cared as much about this as I do, Well, I know so much more than my wife. I study so much more than she does. Or or I know so much more than my husband. Why don't they care the way I do? And it's just spiritual pride. But then we're also in the danger of asceticism. In fact, you can look around the world. This is still going on today. There are festivals where people will inflict pain upon themselves by whipping themselves. They will even put themselves on a cross. They're practicing asceticism. Now, we may not do those things, but we can do some self-denial things and go, you know, I'm not going to do that or I'm not going to be involved in that thinking that that then gains us something else. Or licentiousness. We're all in danger of minimizing sin and not taking it seriously as we should. I mean, we can think, it's okay. Man, God will forgive me. We've all probably thought that. So what is so fascinating about Scripture is this could be written almost 2,000 years ago, and the truth is still so applicable to where we are today. So these dangers are alive and well. So the foundation of Christianity is at stake. And in the first two verses, John is already doing this. So he restates himself in verse 2. The life Jesus It was made manifest. It was shown. It was brought to us. That salvation is not this secret superior knowledge. Salvation is through Jesus Christ, the Word, the life, that was made manifest. That the Word was made visible, made to be seen, and made to be understood. John is saying that God is not hiding from anyone. Salvation is not through something that we have to go out and search for. And hopefully find it. That salvation was manifested to us. It was made known. And John says, I was there. And We have seen it. And testify to it. And proclaim it to you. The eternal life. Which was with the Father. And was made manifest to us. Was shown to us. That which we have seen. And we have heard, we proclaim also to you. So he says, we, the disciples, we saw him and we are now testifying about him. It isn't through this secret knowledge you have to go searching for, hoping that you're one of the lucky ones to find it. So John's desire is that they would put away this false teaching and hold fast to the truth that was revealed and taught and that they once believed. So what John is doing, he is now going to lay out the mark or the evidence of God's work in the lives of those who believe. So back to our original question. What is something that that would be seen in a person or what, what mark or evidence would there be of true, authentic faith? And we might think of things like Man, you'd see somebody abstaining for sin. And we're going to look at that. John's going to deal with that a lot. We might say, oh, someone is baptized, and man, there's the mark. That's that's how you know. Somebody comes to faith in Christ, and all of a sudden, they're, they're diving into the Scriptures, and they're reading, and they're memorizing Scripture. Man, that would be great evidence. What about a person praying often? Letting people know, how can I pray for you? I'm praying for you. Man, that would be Mark, and that would be evidence of God working in their life. But authentic, true belief, notice how John says the evidence is. So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John says that true, authentic faith is marked by one word, fellowship. That is what true, authentic faith, that is the evidence, it is fellowship. So what is John meaning by this? Fellowship is this word that means things like oneness and unity and shared life and and connectedness. Because notice the flow of verse 3. He says, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is first with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So he says, faith or belief in Christ brings us into fellowship with each other that begins with fellowship with God the Father and the Son. So he's painting this picture that true authentic faith is seen in this horizontal, in this vertical fellowship. So what does he mean by fellowship with God? I think he means he's describing this fellowship with God means that his heartbeat, it becomes your heartbeat. That his mission becomes your mission. His goals and plans are your goals and plans. What he loves, you love. What he desires, you desire. What he hates, you hate. That the Christian life is an ever-deepening fellowship with God that creates and reproduces within us the mind of Christ. But we would never search for that. We would never go looking for that on our own. God had to come to us in order for any of that to happen. But there's also this horizontal thing, this horizontal fellowship. And it's so much more than going to get a cup of coffee or even seeing each other on a Sunday morning. Fellowship means that which all Christians share and celebrate in common. And John says it begins and it starts with Jesus Christ in salvation. The belief in Jesus Christ brings salvation that places us in fellowship with all believers everywhere. And it's seen in the way we love and we encourage and we forgive and we show grace And we support other believers. John says that is the mark of authentic, true faith. John begins this epistle this way. That there is a fellowship. There there is a oneness. There is a connectedness that only Christ can bring about. And only Christ can connect other believers to. That John is saying that there is a fellowship that which you cannot find anywhere else other than the church. You can't do it. Listen, you can have a lot of great relationships, I do, outside of this place. Your kids are involved in all kinds of things, and you build relationships because we spend so much time together at the ball field or wherever it might be. You serve together on different boards and organizations, and you truly get to know each other. But there is a deeper fellowship that the world cannot create. There is a fellowship that can only be found in and through Jesus Christ that he then creates among believers. So John then expresses this in the last verse. It's one of the purposes he wrote this. With all that in mind, he says, we are writing these things that Jesus Christ eternally existed that he came to create a fellowship with God the Father and each other, writing these things so that our joy collectively may be complete. So he's not writing to discourage or to shame or to divide people. He is writing that there is a joy that could be experienced in its fullness, and it cannot be found outside of Jesus Christ and his church. Because everything else in life will always leave you disappointed in wanting more. So John says there is a joy that can only come from being in fellowship with Christ and experiencing true biblical oneness with other Christians. And That is where John starts this epistle. So I'm excited this morning just to lay the foundation because we are going to be diving deep into some great theological truths. But John begins by showing us that the mark of God's work in your life is fellowship. It is oneness with God and oneness, connectedness with each other. That that is the mark of authentic, biblical, true faith. I want you to know, this is going to be an exciting journey. And I encourage you to go and read through this book as often as you can.